Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit Quora.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words from Scripture. Our first passage is from Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faithfulness for faith. As it is written, the righteous person will live by faith. And from Ephesians chapter two, you were dead through the trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. St. Paul is credited with writing 13 letters, the earliest documents of the New Testament. He penned some of the Bible's most powerful words, and also a few of its most confusing. Paul's letters had a profound impact on Christian theology and faith, and they continue to speak to us today. The significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is revealed to us through the gospel according to Paul. It's hard to believe that it was just a week ago that many of us in Kansas City and really 123 million other Americans were watching the Kansas City Chiefs playing in the Super Bowl and winning with three seconds left on the clock in overtime. It was an exhilarating experience if you were a Chiefs fan. And, uh, and then this week on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, was the Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade. And so I was with a number of other folks from our church and about a million other Kansas Cityans downtown on the parade route at our Resurrection downtown location. We were giving out free coffee to people as they were, you know, as they were waiting. And, and uh, we had games going on in the, you know, in the, uh, in the parking lot. And it was just such a fun experience. And, and then we were, several of us were on the rooftop of, uh, of our downtown location watching. You could see the parade route. It's just, again, people everywhere you looked. It was so fun and so exciting. And the buses passing by. And, and there was about 50 of them. And, and most of the Chiefs players weren't on the buses anymore. They were out walking among the crowd and it was just, it was just so fun. And they, they ended up, they, they final, you know, the final uh, end of the route was at Union Station, Kansas City's Union Station. And there they heard from players, they saw the trophy and there was again, people everywhere. And then as the event wound down, the sound of gunshots and what had been an exciting, exhilarating three or four days suddenly was deflated by the pain and the brokenness and the tragedy of something senseless happening where, where 23 people were shot 
And, uh, and one of them died. Lisa Lopez Galvin died. Little children and teenagers and, and, and middle-aged and older adults, all of them experiencing this violence and the people ter- in terror running away from the scene. And, and it seemed somehow that the message of Ash Wednesday was seen before our eyes on television or for the crowd that was there. Ash Wednesday, as you may recall, is a message that is focused on two ideas, laying out the human condition of sin And so people mark their foreheads with ashes as a reminder of our sin and our need for God's grace. And then those ashes also remind us of our mortality, that we're all going to die. And the reason why Ash Wednesday in the season of Lent starts with that message of sin and mortality is because the end of the season of Lent climaxes with Christ dying on the cross for our sin and being raised from the dead on Easter Sunday to show us that he has defeated hell and evil and sin and hate and death somehow we were seeing Ash Wednesday before our eyes at Union Station that day. Well, today, as we begin our season of Lent here, we are going to be focusing our attention on the message of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus as seen through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. So often during the season of Lent, we focus on one of the gospels. We'll read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. But this year, we're going to read the gospel according to Paul. We're going to look at his 13 letters, and we're going to see what did he teach about what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really means. We're going to focus on his message. We're going to find so many powerful things that he taught that speak to us even this weekend. Even after the tragedies of this week, we find how powerfully Paul's words speak to us. And we're going to come in one of the weeks and look at the places where we find ourselves confused by Paul, passages in Paul that are, that are unsettling, and we're going to try to make sense of those as well. And finally, at the end of the season of Lent, we're going to see what Paul thought about the cross of Christ and Jesus' resurrection. So that's where we're heading during the season of Lent. All right, so as we do that, I want to begin by thinking together about the gospel according to Paul. Paul uses the word gospel 60 times in his 13 letters, and as he uses it, he sometimes calls it the gospel of God, and sometimes the gospel of Jesus, and sometimes my gospel, and when he uses that word, the word literally means good news. It's a good message. It's a true message, and in his case, it's a message that has the power to change people's lives and the power to change the world. I want you to remember the words Paul starts uh, the book of Romans with. Actually, this is Romans 1.16. And, and in 1.16, he captures really the essence of how he sees the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the word gospel literally meant in Greek, again, good news, good message. And he preached it. And upon hearing it, as people heard it and they believed it, they found their own lives transformed It gave them hope and grace and mercy, and God worked through this message. It was a message that God worked through, a message that was first portrayed in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, and then conveyed through the preaching of the apostles. Now, Paul's good news started, however, with some bad news, and that's where we want to start today. So that's where Ash Wednesday begins, with some bad news. The bad news that we all struggle with sin and that we are mortals. Today, we're going to focus on this idea, the human condition is our struggle with sin. So Paul begins the book of Romans, and he speaks about sin a lot throughout the rest of his letters, but he begins the book of Romans with three chapters focused on this, and really it comes up again in in the sixth chapter, and then in the seventh chapter, Paul talks about sin. And by the way, Paul uses the word sin throughout the scriptures, throughout his letters. Uh, I think it's 74 times he mentions this word. The Greek word is hamartia. And hamartia, you may remember, was an archer's term. It meant to miss the mark. So if you're shooting an arrow with a bow and you miss the mark, kind of like this little video clip you see here, it's what hamartia meant. So you can see the arrows flying, but they don't quite hit the mark. 
That's literally what hamartia meant. And as we look at that, we recognize that that's also what happens in our lives as well. So it's a pretty good word for capturing what happens in us, that there are times that we miss the mark. And the mark is what God's will is for our lives. So this is God's will. And then sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we miss it by just a little, and sometimes we miss it by a lot. When we think about sin in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, uh, the idea is to stray from the path. So we miss the mark, hamartia, or the Hebrew word implies straying from the path. And we know that that happens with us as well, that there's a right path we're meant to walk, and sometimes we end up on the wrong path. We go in the wrong direction, even on the right path. And so we struggle with this. Now, the Apostle Paul believed that we were all created in the image of God. So God created us. There's, there's that which is you know, the image of God imprinted on our souls. There's something good in us. And we have the possibility of doing good things. But we also know that somewhere close at hand is this tendency to do the thing that we're not supposed to do. I wonder if you recognize places where you struggle with sin because we all do at various points in our lives. And I'd love for you to, you know, if you've got a pen, have it handy. And if you don't have any paper, I'm gonna invite you in a few minutes to write on your hand or somewhere that you can remember. You can use your phone if you want to, but we're gonna think together about where are the places where we have missed the mark, where we have strayed from the path. And again, what we saw in the news this week was a picture, a grotesque picture of what happens when people, you know, become violent, when they become angry, when they, when they become agitated, and then they end up doing things that are irresponsible, and then they end up hurting other people. That's just one glimpse of what sin looks like in the human condition. Now, Paul goes on to say this, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. I mean, as he's saying that, he's talking about, you know, rightfully God is angered by the hurt and pain. And, you know, sometimes we think, well, how could God ever be angry? But then we watch and we see something happen like happened this week. And we see an innocent person who's standing just celebrating and children and, and, and even those who weren't physically injured by bullets, the terror that struck in the hearts of children who'd come out for a fun day and their parents down, you know, down with them, almost all the school districts here in Kansas City let out of school so kids could be there. And, and you understand, when, when people ask me, how are you feeling? I'm like, I'm angry. I'm angry that this happened. I'm angry it happened at this particular time in this place. I'm angry that there were people who did this. They weren't intending to hurt innocent people. They pulled their guns when they were angry with each other. There were four people, you know, again, two teenage boys and a, and a, a boy, another boy or young man and a woman. And, and somehow they started arguing after the, after the parade was over with. And then they, and then they pulled out their guns and then they start running away from each other and firing. I'm told that one of them was firing over their back, you know, over their shoulder like this, not even looking where they were firing. I mean, that just makes me angry. It makes me angry that these kids had guns. It makes me angry that they're using these guns in this way. It makes me angry. And I think, well, how does God feel when he sees his children hurt? So that's what Paul's talking about. When he looks around, you know, if you look around the entire world and you see the wars and violence and bloodshed and the, and the devastation and, you know, in places and, and, and people who feel like they're doing the right thing and yet destroying other people. I mean, the people are starving, not enough to eat when there's more than enough food in the world to go around. I mean, it makes sense. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. And then Paul begins to describe, and he's going to spend the rest of the chapter, rest of chapter one and, and most of chapter two, describing what this sin looks like. And when he starts, it's really kind of a setup job. I just want you to know that up front, because he starts out and he's describing things that at least in his culture and his time among the people he's talking to, you know, and what they'd seen, they would all say, oh yeah, that's terrible, that's terrible. So he talks about, you know, worshiping idols and worshiping things that are created, the things that we make and the things that you know, we can physically touch and people worshiping that. And you can imagine the readers, you know, in Romans, in the town of Rome, 
in the city of Rome, nodding their heads. Yes, yes. And then he talks about sexuality. And he talks about a form of sexuality we're going to talk about in a few weeks when we find Paul kind of confusing. But at the same time, for the people who were listening to him and reading him, they're like, they're nodding their heads. Yeah, that's not me. That's other people. They, they have these problems. Then he goes on to say, he talks about injustice, wicked behavior, greed, and evil behavior. Humans are full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deception, and malice. Again, this is what we saw just this last week in the news, but we see it every day in the news somewhere in the United States and around the world all over. So he's, you know, talking about murder and fighting and, and malice. And, and again, the people who are reading this are nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, amen, Paul, amen. People are really bad, Amen. And then, you know, Paul starts talking about other things. He says they are gossips. They slander people. They hate God. They are rude, proud. They brag. They invent ways to be evil. They are disobedient to their parents. By the time you get to this last little stretch, you're going, um, yeah, I've done that too. I mean, I was thinking about this list and there's at least six of them on the list that I've been guilty of uh, probably many, many times. And my mother can testify. Testify. I was disobedient to my parents many times. So by the time Paul gets to the end of this list, everybody's recognizing themselves in his list of the sins that, that when he talks about sin, it's not something that other people are doing and some of us are not doing. It's something that we all struggle with. It is part of the human condition. So then Paul finally hits them between the eyes in Romans and, uh, and he hits us between the eyes too. He says, so every single one of you who judges others, those of you who are nodding your heads, yeah, look at all those bad people out there. Every single one of you who judges others is without any excuse. You condemn yourself when you judge another person because the one who is judging is doing the same thing. Yikes. I mean, this isn't about condemning certain categories of sin and this is about, look, you all have a problem. We have a problem and I have to recognize that in myself and you, you do as well. So we struggle with sin. Romans 3.23, Paul says, he kind of summarizes it all. He says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. They miss the mark. They stray from the path. In Romans 7, Paul describes himself in that category. He says, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Again, this is what we saw this last week. This is what happens in our lives. We struggle with this on a daily basis. When we talk about sin, we talk about categories of sins, broad categories. It's just helpful to get us thinking. You know, there are sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission are things that I omitted doing. I did not do that I was supposed to do. Like I was supposed to have compassion for that person. I was supposed to stop and help this person. I was supposed to say some kind word to this person. I was supposed to give generously to that, you know, cause. Or, and, and so we look at that and there are times where all of us have omitted doing the good that we were supposed to do. But then on the flip side, we find ourselves doing the things we're not supposed to do. Those are sins of commission. Those are things that we said that hurt somebody else or we should never have said. Or, or those are thoughts that we had in our minds that we should never have thought. Or those are ways that we've acted that we never should have acted. These are things we actually did that were harmful to other people. I find the older that I get, the more my sins are sins of omission rather than commission. I've learned how to you know, try to keep my stuff together so I don't look overtly sinful. But I know what goes on in my head and I know the places that I should have acted and, and which I didn't or the things I should have said, or the ways I should have been generous when I wasn't. We all struggle with sin. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment and recognize when we look at the tragedies that happen in the world, just like this last week in Kansas City, when we look at those, there are some people who have this idea. So you've heard me preach this before if you've been at resurrection any length of time. But, uh, but we look at things that happen and there are some people who think, well, everything happens, happens for a reason. It must've been the will of God as though God is controlling every single thing and making sure that everything happens according to his will. And there are Christians that believe that and that teach that. Methodists are not among them. 
So we look at what happens in the world and we say, wait a minute, Paul's just described in, in, in practically three chapters how human beings sin. And to sin is to stray from the path or to miss the mark to do the things that God doesn't want us to do. So how can we say that whatever happened when people were sinning was God's will? That isn't God's will. Those are people doing exactly what God did not want them to do. And it breaks God's heart. God grieves over the things that we do sometimes or the things that we fail to do to stop and help other people or to accomplish God's purposes in the world. So I mentioned all of that to say that Lent is that time for a reset. So there are times you just have to reset something. I had to reset my computer the other day. There were several things that just weren't working quite right. I had to do this on my phone from time to time. I had a problem with a car, one of our cars, and it had the electronics were having problems. And I finally, I, I couldn't get something to work. It was pretty, pretty serious. And, and the dealership had to come and reset the software. Well, there are times, and the Lent is a great, you know, it really is about that. It's a season of 40 days, not counting Sundays, in which we reset ourselves, in which we come before God and we repent. So I want to talk about repentance for just a couple of moments. So the word repent, you may remember in Hebrew is teshuvah, and teshuvah means to return. So again, if you've got the idea that sin is a straying from the path, then teshuvah is coming back to the right path, it's returning. Right? And so when we think about what the scripture, you know, what the prophets uh, called people to, what, what uh, Jesus called people to do, his very first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, it's to return. It's to come back to the right path. Now in Greek, the word in the New Testament that's used, uh, Jesus spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, but, but the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word is, hum, is um, metanoia. Metanoia means to change how you're thinking. It's to have a change of mind, like, oh my gosh, I, I, I've examined myself and I realize. I, I'm on the wrong path. So I changed my mind, which leads to a change of heart. I feel badly about that. I realize that I haven't been doing what God wants and I feel, I feel crummy about that. I, I feel bad that I've been mistreating somebody else or not doing the thing I should have done. And, and then that leads to a change of behavior. So it's a holistic view in the Greek, metanoia. It's to change your mind, which changes your heart, which changes your behavior. But you gotta start many times with the mind, analyzing yourself, looking over your life and saying, where have I missed the mark? Where have I strayed from the path? What needs to change in me to be lined up with God's will for my life? And so when we repent, we come to God first and we ask God, you know, forgive me and please help me because I can't do this by myself. Please bring me back to the right path. And what I love in Jesus' teachings you know, particularly in the, in the, well, actually his entire ministry is he's constantly inviting people to return to the path. He's constantly going out of his way to find the lost sheep and to bring them back home. That includes us, even longtime Christians. Now on Ash Wednesday, we, we take ashes and we make the sign of the cross on our foreheads. And, uh, and we had Ash Wednesday services here. That's a sign of, again, our repentance as well as our mortality. So when we were down at Res Downtown before the, uh, before the parade officially started, I gathered you know, the staff and volunteers who were there in the sanctuary. And, uh, and so I took the ashes and we anointed uh, their heads with the ashes or really imposed the ashes in the sign of the cross, a sign that they had repented and they wanted to be right with God. My little brother and my little sister had uh, shown up there as well. And so I said, well, come on in. And, and I said, do you all want to receive the ashes? Yes, sure. And then, you know, after that was the parade was officially starting, we went up to the rooftop and we had a chance to watch. This is my little brother and sister. This is Jenny and Matt, uh, one of my little brothers and one of my little sisters. And, uh, and just, but again, the cross, and I don't think none of us even remembered we had the cross on our foreheads at this point, but it was just like, this is a sign that we're in need of God's grace. We recognize we need forgiveness. Now, I was struck by the fact that when we were watching the parade go by, I saw Harrison Butker, who is one of our, I mean, he's an amazing kicker and played a pivotal role in the Chiefs season this year. But I, as I was looking, I thought, even from where I was standing, I thought, I think he's got ashes on his forehead. 
And, you know, that would have meant that he'd gone to an Ash Wednesday service early in the morning before the Super Bowl parade. And this is a picture I saw online. And there he is. I love the fact that he has ashes on his forehead. I love the fact that before the Super Bowl parade, he went to church. And he had the ashes placed on his forehead as a way of publicly saying, and didn't wipe them off before he went in the parade, right? That would have been easy to do. I know people who go to Ash Wednesday and then they wipe the ashes off. No, he's like there for the whole world to see. Like, I, I've sinned. I've strayed from the path and I need God's grace. I love that. So when we think about this, we think about, you know, this idea that we're all in need of, of grace and we're all in need of God's love and we have strayed from the path. The season of Lent is about us thinking about this, about us getting it right and, and, and you know, coming before God and saying, please forgive me, form me and shape me, create in me a clean heart, make me the person you want me to be. So here's what I wanna ask you to do. I had asked you to have a pen handy. I'd like for you to write down, if you got a piece of paper, write this down. And, or if you wanna use your phone or you can write on your hand if you want to and then you know, put it on paper when you get home. But here's what I'd like for you to do. Is I'd like for you to say, you know, where are the places where right now I can see I have strayed from the path, I've missed the mark, I'm struggling with sin, that I can repent of it. So you might just take, and if you don't wanna do that, just write the question and answer it later on for yourself, maybe before you go to bed tonight. Lord, and on our Ash Wednesday services, we always write a letter to God. So on Ash Wednesday, before we impose the ashes, we have people write this letter, dear God, please forgive me for. And then you just start writing it down and you start reflecting upon it. Now, I want you to understand that the point of Lent isn't to tell you you're you're a terrible person. The point of Paul talking about sin isn't to be this, you know, to give you this sense that you're a worm and you, you know, you deserve death and all these things. He needs you to understand. He wants us to understand our sins so that we can appreciate God's gift. But in the end, that's where he's heading is for us to understand the gift that God gives to us. And so some of you have grown up in churches, perhaps where, you know, what you got every week was you're a terrible person and you're sinful and you're horrible and God, you know, God's angry with you. And that's not the gospel. That is simply not the gospel of Jesus. It's not the gospel of the apostle Paul. So he's diagnosing a problem and then the point is to get to the solution. This week, I had the opportunity to sit with a friend of mine at the hospital while his wife was undergoing surgery. She'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. As we were talking, he didn't say, <clears throat> you know what, I just, those doctors, they're just such a downer. They told my wife she had cancer. How horrible was that? That wasn't what he said. He said, I'm so grateful that the doctors figured this out so early so we could have this treatment and, and, and the prognosis is so good after her surgery. We're just really grateful for that. You see, when we finally recognize that there's a solution to our problem, if we don't know that we have a problem, we can't appreciate or even apply the solution. But instead, the gospel is about, here's the problem, now what's the solution? By the way, when we think about this picture of God, some people have a picture of God who is like Jesus, who associates with sinners and tax collectors and loves them and, and is constantly offering forgiveness. And other people have a picture of God who's angry and wrathful. And I think back, and I shared this a couple of months ago in a sermon, but that sermon, famous sermon from 1741 by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Let me just read that portion again. He, he writes, he's actually preaching to his congregation in 1741. He says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Now, there are people who really like that. They love that sermon. Can I just tell you, that is not what Jesus was like. Jesus didn't preach that way. He didn't act that way. The only time Jesus talked about this sort of wrathful picture of God was when he was preaching to the religious hypocrites. But when it came to ordinary sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, thieves, whatever, you know what he did? He showed mercy. 
He broke bread with them. He befriended them. He talked about a God who was like a shepherd who went out and searching for the one lost sheep or a father who welcomed back his son after he'd squandered everything he had. Right? That's what God is like. And so again, the point of Paul teaching about sin is to get to the good news. So now the good news. Let's talk about that for a minute. So when we think about the good news, we hear it in Ephesians chapter two. Listen to this. You were dead through trespasses and sins. And then I love these two words, but God. Say that out loud, but God. But God, but God who is rich in mercy out of, the, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ or with Christ. I love that, but God, but God. So we are sinners, but God's grace is stronger and more powerful than our sin. We have walked away from God, but God has chased after us. We feel loveless, but God loves us. We feel hopeless, but God is our hope. We feel alone, but God is with us all the time. But God, I love that, but God. We are sinners, but God has grace. I love what Paul says in the verses after this, verse eight. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So I want you to catch this. What's being said here is that you can't do anything to pay for or earn your salvation, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's hope, God's presence, God's favor. You can't earn it. God just gives it to you because he loves you, because it's his nature to love you. It's his nature to show mercy to you. So you can't boast about anything you've done. We seek to follow Christ. We live in response to that grace. We're meant to do good works. We're meant to be faithful and, 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 you know, following Christ. But we do that in response to a gift that's already been given, not as those trying to earn a gift that we could never earn. Paul doesn't want you languishing in guilt, but you do need to acknowledge your need for Christ. And then I love what he says when he's talking to the the Ephesian Christians. He talks about his prayer for them. And this is what he says. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, the greatness of God's love for you and for me. That's what he's preaching about. Now, there's a huge difference between living a faith in which you're trying to get God's approval, which you're desperately wanting God to love you. I mean, I've watched this sometimes with with kids and their parents, adult kids who are desperately trying to get their parents to show love to them or to to win their approval. We live in a performance society in which we're, we're used to getting rewarded for our performance, but the gospel is just the opposite of that. You get the reward, and then in response to that, with gratitude, you live your life And I was thinking about this this week. One of our members, Mindy McKinnis, sent me a little video clip of an interview with one of the Chiefs. Just took place this last week after the Super Bowl. And this is uh, this is one of the players who's a linebacker for the Chiefs. He started just in 2023. Had a couple of great uh, uh, tackles during the Super Bowl. And uh, his name's Drew Tranquil. And I want you to listen to how he describes the difference between the gospel and football. Take a listen. Just the fact that there's nothing I can do. I think as an athlete, you get into the performance mindset of kind of earning respect, earning um, earning people's love, if you will, earning the approval of others. And uh, I learned that it's not that way with God. God loves you regardless of uh, what you can do, what you've done in your past. And um, I think that encounter with grace is uh, was really monumental for my faith. I love that. And that's part of what what I want you to figure out. He had a a profound experience as a young person where he finally figured out he wasn't trying to win God's approval. God already approved him. God already loved him. God already gave himself for him. 
All he could do was accept that. So today I want us to recognize that we're sinners in need of saving, but God has already done everything necessary to save us. And he wants us and he loves us and he longs for us to walk with him. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is merciful and just, that he loves his people and that he longs to forgive us, to walk with us, to clean us, to bring us back to the right path, to heal us and to offer us life. Now, I, wanna, I wanna remind you of a couple other things uh, as we close. So the words of the Apostle Paul in, uh, in, in this passage in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, verse 10, he goes on to say this, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So by grace, we are saved through faith. We simply trust in it. It's a gift from God. It's not something that we earn so that we can't boast. But then he says, but this is what you were made for. You were made to do good works. We were created to show kindness, compassion, mercy to other people. We were created to do the right thing. And I love this because it's not just that we accept God's saving grace, but then we live according to his will in our lives. This is what we pray when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That in my life, Lord, may your kingdom come. May you use me so that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's aim is mercy, love, compassion from us. All right, that leads me to uh, one last passage from Paul in Romans. It's Romans chapter 12. And it's a passage I've preached from many times. It is a, it is a sentence, a line of Paul's that I think is profound. And he says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our response to tragedy, to pain, is this right here. It is, oh God, we know you didn't cause this. This wasn't your will, but we know you can do something good through it. We know you can redeem it. We know you can bring healing where there's brokenness and use us to do that. Help us not be overcome by evil, not overcome by the, the, by the broken things we see in the world. Help us not give in to that, but oh Lord, help us to overcome evil with good. That leads me to our conclusion and an invitation for you. So my invitation in this sermon is for you to think about where do you need to repent? Where have you strayed from the path and come back to the mark? I wanna invite you to repent, to say, God, please help me. And I wanna come back and forgive me, I pray. I want you to be able to say, I trust in your good news, Jesus. I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in your salvation. I trust that you've given me a gift already and I don't have to earn it. I want you to say all of those things, but I also want you to be able to say, Lord, use me. Help me to live according to your will and help me overcome evil with good. So here's the last invitation I have for you. And that is that this week, I just learned that there's a fund being set up here in Kansas City that churches can contribute to. And that fund is aimed at addressing violence in Kansas City when it happens. So the funds that are going first are gonna be spent to assist these. So I, I understand the funeral expenses are covered and more than that by Taylor Swift uh, for Lisa Lopez Gavlin's uh, Galvin's family. And I'm really, really grateful for that. But I know that there are 22 other people who are going to have medical expenses, uh, who are being treated now, some of them still in the hospital, that there are uh, those 22 plus their families, plus those who are around them who are going to need counseling and care. I know there were two more kids who were killed in Kansas City uh, over this last week. And so this fund is being set up by churches, by Christians like you and me, to be able to have funds to help with counseling, medical needs, whatever it might be, as a way of saying the church and Christians love Kansas City as a way for us to say, we're gonna overcome evil with good.
So if you're interested in participating in that, I'm going to be participating. If you'd like to participate, I'd like to invite you to go to core.org slash next, and you're going to find a link there. Just go look, and you'll be able to click on a link, and you're going to be able to participate in this offering if you'd like to do that. And we're going to see what we can do to overcome evil with good. Listen, there is brokenness and sin in all of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said this. Solzhenitsyn once said this. He said, the line between good and evil runs to the heart of every person, every human being. That's true in us. That's true in you and me, everyone else. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God longs to forgive us, that God longs to bring us to the right path, and that as we walk with Christ, his Holy Spirit working in us, we have the power to be able to overcome evil with good. So I'd like to invite you to pray with me right now. You might just put your hands on your lap like this, and I'd like to invite you to whisper this prayer. Lord, you know all the places where I have strayed from the path. You know every time that I have missed the mark. Forgive me, I pray. Thank you for loving me still. I accept your gift of salvation. Form me and shape me into the person you want me to be. And help me, O oh Lord, to be a part of overcoming evil with good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.